Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Jim, you and I have talked a handful of times already, um, just as we've examined the effects of the pandemic life on our lives, you know, how much that changed things for us, the ways in which it accelerated several cultural trends, the ways that it has underlined mental health issues and so on. But we haven't yet touched on a segment of culture that boomed during the pandemic and just continues to grow dramatically. And that is the world of gaming. Currently, more than 200 million Americans play video games. And the majority of them are not children. The largest percentage of gamers are between 18 and 34 years old. So in other words, the gaming industry has come a long way since Pong was first introduced in the 1970s. Um, but Jim, as a cultural observer how, like who looks at the various impacts of you know cultural um, trends, how big of a blip is gaming on your radar? I am so glad that we're, we're doing this because I think it's an under-discussed uh, issue in our culture, at least from like our vantage point, folk like us and within the church. Uh, and uh, so to answer your question, I think it's it's a huge blip. <laughs> I wouldn't use the word blip on the cultural radar screen. Uh, you mentioned more than 200 million Americans play video games or games of one nature or another. Let's put that into perspective. You hear figures, yeah, 200 million, 200, you know, you just, you just, it just triples off the tongue. Um, the total population of the United States is just over 300 million. So that's over 60% of the total U.S. population. Mm. Uh, that's a lot of people. Yeah. That that is that has permeated our culture. Uh, video gaming in the United States is one of the fastest growing entertainment industries, without a doubt. This is not, as you mentioned, an adolescent phenomenon by any means. The average age of a U.S. gamer, again, as you pointed out, is, is around 35 is the average. Uh, the average number of years a person in the United States has been playing games is 13 years. They've been at it a long time. Uh, in 2021, it was reported that the age distribution of U.S. gamers was, uh, and I thought this was fascinating, only 20% were under 18 years. Hmm. Only, only 20%. 38%, as you mentioned, were between 18 and 34. And get this, 26%. <laughs> we're between 35 and 54. Wow. That's pretty spread out. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's fairly even between the sexes. Uh, the American gamer population is right at about 54% male and 46% uh, female. Uh, of those females, women 18 and older account for a greater portion of the population than males younger than 18. And the speed by which gaming has taken over culturally is just stunning. At least when you think about it historically, I, I actually wrote about this some in my book, Hybrid Church. Uh, think about the adoption of something like the telephone, a technology like the telephone. It took 75 years, 75 years for 100 million people to gain access to the telephone. In 2016, the gaming app Pokemon Go 
was able to hook that many users in less than 30 days. Wow. <clears throat> so even esports hmm. uh, are supplanting the world of physical sports in the lives of, of younger generations, with almost 90% of teenagers in the United States having access to us or in possession of a smartphone. It's not hard to see why. And the time we're spending on games mm-hmm. is, is stunning. Games are designed to hook you. They're designed to keep you engaged. I mean, if, if people don't think that that's not the point, that's the point. Um, and which means we binge play them. And the average binge right now in the United States is just over five hours per playing binge. Mm. That's a lot of time. Uh, but even apart from binging, the average person is playing in the United States is spending between eight and 13 hours a week on it. Uh, so, again, this is this is an enormous amount of time that we're spending on on games. Uh, the statistics on video consumption are just are just amazing. I, 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 I did some knowing we were going to talk about. this. I was I was doing some historical research because we, we can it's easy to think that this happened overnight. But you go all the way back to 2012. 10 years ago, Call of Duty Black Ops 2 made $500 million in sales in its first 24 hours. It's a decade ago. Uh, The following year, more than 8,000 stores across North America had midnight openings to help Grand Theft Auto 2 take in $800 million in a day. In a day, that game went on to rack up a billion dollars in only three days. That's more than any other movie in history. Wow. A movie that's more than any movie in history. Again, uh, that was the hold it had on culture ten years ago, and so those figures obviously today blow that away. So this is a big deal, culture. Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes sense that something like gaming would definitely profit from, you know, the forced years of isolation under COVID. I mean, what else are we doing? But I mean, what else has contributed to the rise of gaming? Because it's not only that. I think there's several dynamics um, in play here. Let's let's state the most obvious. Uh, Technology has allowed gaming uh, to go well, to go well beyond, as you pointed out at the beginning, what Pong did when it came out. The power of computers and the ability of software has allowed an immersive experience. You throw in VR or AR, uh, you know, virtual reality or augmented reality, that, that's very real and it's very, very engaging. It's, 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 it's entertaining, it's, it's addictive. Uh, you enter an alternative world, an alternative reality, an alternative, you take on alternative personalities. It, it's role play, it's fantasy acting out. Um, just, just, just think why there's so much, uh, talk about the metaverse, uh, which can be thought of maybe as even like the next generation of gaming, or at least the kind of world that you can enter into with gaming. Uh, the metaverse is this combination of multiple elements of technology, including virtual reality, uh, augmented reality and video where you live within a digital universe. And it's so powerful with so much attraction that, it led Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Facebook, to change the name of Facebook to Meta. That was how big of an event that they felt this was culturally. Um, and so if you want a reference point of, of just how immersive this can be, how 
uh, overcoming it can be, how overwhelming it can be, how it can take over a life, really watch and think and reflect on the movie Avatar. Mm. Um, and, um, and, and the metaverse really would be that, that, that shared social space where avatars represent users, you know, a world where um, avatars inhabit and enact. And if you, and if you know anything about that movie, you know that uh, Scully, I believe the, the actor's name, the, the character's name was, was so, was so involved in it. So immersed in it, he lost sense of that became his, who he was. That became the reality he wanted. That became the life that he wanted. Not just because he was in a wheelchair and wanted to get out, but it, that was the, the world he wanted to live in. He wanted to be that avatar. And that tells you the power of this over a human psyche. Um, and so this is the this is the appeal of, of, of gaming. And I think another thing about gaming that has is changed is is um, not only the immersive thing, but the raw, the raw entertainment value of it. I don't think if you're not, you know, you, you have to appreciate the fact that these are just some darn good stories and experiences. Yeah. And for example, uh, think about what has just happened for the first time. It's not going to be the last, which is it used to be that um, that for the first time, Hollywood, if you will, went to a game and made it a film hmm. and took it as a story. And that was uh, HBO's The Last of Us, hmm. which if you've seen is a is, is remarkable filmmaking is a phenomenal story and it's the most popular thing right now out and uh uh i mean it's extremely extremely popular and that's a video game that that was based on a game and and taken quite literally from the game and that's not gonna be the first uh the last time that that happens so there's just good stories and and good entertainment and and where many many people many many artists are choosing now to go into gaming many many writers choosing to go into gaming than they are the film industry than they are novels than they are you know painting uh and so this is really almost getting the first fruits of our artistic community um but there's more here too at least culturally give me a long answer to one of your first questions um there was a detailed analysis of gaming and and gamers that I ran across from the, the, the British newspaper, The Telegraph, uh, that we'll put in the show notes, that, that found uh, video games and porn are a safe place for young men, specifically young men. Uh, they become increasingly adept and skilled at gaming and they refine their skills. And as you said, this is crossing with women too, but the article is focused on men, but women are involved in porn and gaming as well. And so it's not unique to that, but this article was focused on a study of men, young men and how they can achieve high status and, and respect within the game and that gaming's world, that game's world. It was, it's was a fascinating exploration. Uh, there was a young British person, for instance, who uh, uh, they, they found that a young British person is more likely to have a television in their bedroom than a father in the house by the end of their childhood. And that the comparison is not incidental. Uh, there, there are simply trends radically alter, alter, altering male identity. 
um, such as absent fathers and, and unemployment and a lack of exercise and a lack of positive male role models. And so this particular analysis found that a shy boy particularly mm. uh, or a shy man might prefer to be online than, you know, out and about. Uh, they might, you know, at school or out on the street, they might be weak or needy or just ordinary, but in his computer. Uh, he can kill machine gun wielding soldiers and have sex with tall, perfect looking women. Um, the digital self becomes less and less like the real life operator. And it's been noted that it's easy to see how that collapse of the psyche can become this vicious circle. You know, shyness leads to staying in more. That in turn leads to stunted development of social skills which leads to more debilitating shyness. So there's a lot of factors, yeah. a lot of factors. I just gave like three different ones that radically that contribute to the rise of gaming well, and its popularity. I'll add one more to that because I, if you were to ask a gamer, I mean, certainly they'll mention entertainment is, you know, important to them when it comes to games, but, but actually more and more people are pointing to the social connections that they offer. Um, people are saying that like anecdotally that, um, video games saved their friendships during COVID because we're not just connecting with our friends, you know, with our existing friends through gaming. I mean, that, that that's definitely um, something that's occurring, but we're also making new friends and sometimes even future spouses through gaming. In fact, nearly half of gamers claim to have met a good friend, a spouse, or a significant other through a video game. What do you make of the relational impact of gaming? No, I think it's real. Mm -hmm. I think it's very real. I think just like all online community is real. Again, this is something that I talked about in Hybrid Church, uh, that book. The digital revolution has changed what being in community actually means and how that's forged and how that's facilitated. Uh, for example, the percentage of young people who said their favorite way to talk to friends is face-to-face -face declined from 49% to 32% in just six years, the last six years. Massive drop off. Now, not even not even one out of every three say face to face is how they want to do it. Uh, one researcher put it this way. They said, you can't help but say, is there something big going on here? Uh, some fundamental shift in the way people are communicating with each other. And the answer, of course, is, well, yes, there's a very big shift going on here. There was a Squarespace survey found that younger generations think that online presence is more important than in-person interactions. It's just simply a fact that community is being forged digitally before it is being forged physically, even if it is forged physically at all. And it can be even more authentic than what an in-person face-to-face community has been for their life. I think you and I talked about this once before, but I can't remember whether it was in one of our podcasts or whether it was just uh, one of our personal conversations, but there was research from Stanford University's social media lab it found that for uh, every individual online, that there's at least two major online worlds, that all of us online, and most of us are, we have two online worlds. The inside world are those people that we really know and that, that are inside our social network. These are our family and our friends and our coworkers. Um, the second world is the stream of digital information that just flows into our lives from sources we do not know personally. Um, tweets and news articles and you know social media comments, the outside world. 
And what Stanford found was that though they found that communication in the inside world tends to be more honest online than if it was even face to face. That's more vulnerable, it's more personal, it's more honest that way. Uh, that many who are dismissive, and many are, are just dismissive of anything meaningful occurring online in terms of community or relationship, tend to think of the outside world engagements. That's what their mind's going toward, the outside world engagements. They're not thinking of the inside world engagements. And the inside world engagements online are being shown to be more intimate, more honest than face-to-face. So, and it's the inside world, quite frankly, that we're talking about. And when people say they're experiencing community online, they're experiencing community through the gaming community is largely becoming their inside world. But it's not just peer relationships or like romantic relationships that are blooming um, with gaming. It's also a prominent way in which parents are bonding with their kids. Um, I read that a quarter of all gamers play with their kids. It was interesting. I have to admit, I laughed out loud when I read that just because of the irony of the fact that I also had just read an article in the Times about um, how the NHS Gaming Center is treatingly increasing larger amounts of parents whose children are struggling with um, gaming addiction to the point of violence, like when parents try to take away their children's consoles. (laughs) So it's like two very different pictures of what this looks like. So how do we consider both sides of this parent-child gaming dynamic? I'll, I'll give you a real short answer on this one, then we can talk about it further if you want to follow up. But I think this is a tough one. Um, on the one hand, parents want to control gaming, uh, both in terms of content and time spent on it. Uh, most would probably prefer an alternative recreational investment, something outside, something physical or something that involves reading. But then there's the other side. Uh, you know, all their friends are into it. And it's a way of bonding with your child and playing with your child. And you ask yourself, is this the new monopoly? Um, And that we play together as a family. So I get it. Uh, I do have a concern, though, that for a lot of parents, it's a lazy way of interacting with their child. And I don't mean that as pejorative as it sounds. I'm not trying to say that. But I mean, it can be, I think, for any parent, a lazy way of engaging because you like gaming and you want to play this game. And so it's a way for you to do what you want to do. And you just include the child with it. Okay, well, I do want to follow up on that because I do think this is so prevalent. And just as a parent myself, I mean, this is a conversation that a lot of us are having with each other of how do we draw these boundaries? Because, I mean, video games have also shown to have, you know, stress relieving benefits, educational benefits. um, And then also, like we mentioned, like that's where they're engaging with a lot of their friends. So how would you, you know, if you had a parent, I'm sure you've probably had this exact conversation, but you have a parent who comes to you for counsel of like how how should I think about this? How should I draw boundaries here? Two boundaries should be really clear for all parents. Uh, first, the content boundary. Uh, think about two of the most popular games that are currently dominating the gaming world. And I and, and as part of my own cultural studies, I try to keep up with the gaming world. I'm not a gamer. I don't own any of these games, but I try to explore them and investigate them and, 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 try to find ways to to interact with them in a way to know what's going on. And two of the most popular right now are Grand Theft Auto and Call of Duty Black Ops. Uh, I have no doubt that parents have kids wanting to play those games. Uh, They have kids talking about other kids playing those games. Uh, They go to a friend's house where those games are there to be played. Uh, But the rating on, for example, Call of Duty is the rating M for Mature. Uh, that doesn't mean 
just, oh, my kid's mature. (laughs) (laughs) No, (laughs) that means it is not suitable for persons under the age of 18. Now, most R movies are 17. So this is worse than an R rated movie. And it earns, it earns that. It earns its M for mature rating due to, uh, uh, for example, that particular game due to violence, gore, profanity, uh, the intensity of certain scenes, also present are sex and drugs and drinking and smoking. Same is true of Grand Theft Auto. Grand Theft Auto, I would argue, is probably wor- is a worse. Um, not that I'm saying that Black Ops is good, but Grand Theft Auto is even worse because it has gang violence, nudity, extremely coarse language, drug and alcohol abuse. It even has one scene where it asks the player to torture another human being. Uh, so make sure you know the difference between Super Mario or Pokemon with other titles that are out there. Not all games are created equal in terms of content. But then comes the second boundary that parents should be on guard for, and that is addiction. And I think we, we need to talk about gaming addiction as something very real. It's not something that's made up. It's very, very real. Even though gaming has been around for almost 50 years, studies about its harms are really just now in the very earliest of stages. Uh, the World Health Organization added gaming disorder to its uh, medical reference book only in 2018. I mean, that's how fresh the studies are. So here's what to look for. And this isn't just for a child. This is for anyone involved in gaming. This is for an adult. So just kind of a shopping list of things. When you're thinking about gaming um, all or a lot of the time, uh, you feel bad when you can't play. Um, you are needing to spend more and more time playing to feel good. Not being able to quit or even or to play less. Uh, not wanting to do other things that you used to like. Uh, having problems at work or school or at home because of your gaming. Uh, playing on despite all these problems. Uh, lying to people close to you about how much time you spend playing, Uh, using gaming uh, to ease bad moods and feelings. Now, that's just a sampling. Now, uh, let's be quick to say there's a difference between being enthusiastic about gaming and being addicted to gaming, without a doubt. But for the parent, be on the lookout for things like this, including does their video gaming get in the way of other important things in their life, like relationships? Or school? Uh, Have they crossed a line between loving to play and having to play? Uh, If you're a parent who's concerned about the amount of time your child spends gaming, look at how well they're doing uh, at school and with friends. Having good grades and a good relationship with parents are signs that a child's video gaming is unlikely to be a problem. For most parents, the key is preventing a gaming problem. And this is pretty commonsensical. So it's just set time limits for play and stick to them. Uh, keep phones and other gadgets out of the bedroom so they don't play late into the night after the door is shut. Uh, do other activities every day, including exercise. Um, this will lower the health risk of sitting and playing for long stretches of time. 
So most of this, I think, is pretty common sense. Hmm. It's not just parent-child relationships, though, that are struggling with gaming. Like uh, spousal relationships really are, too. I read a survey. It was performed last year, and it showed that I think it was a quarter. One of four married couples argue about gaming at least once, if not twice a week. And specifically, they are fighting about the amount of time that one of the spouses is spending on gaming. I can certainly testify to the validity of those results, not from personal experience. Um, My husband and I are not gamers, but just from seeing what a lot of our married friends have experienced or are currently experiencing. Um, So this is, I mean, I'm just like thinking you and Susan probably did not have many arguments over gaming. So this is kind of a newer thing, but what are your thoughts on the role of gaming in a marriage? I've been surprised at how much has come up just pastorally. Mm -hmm. And um, and hearing from other pastors at our church and, and young couples saying and 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 particularly and I know this is evenly split between men and women, but particularly hearing young wives say this is something that my husband seems to be obsessed with or it's an issue for our marriage or the amount of time they're spending gaming has become an issue for our marriage. You know, they'll come home at the end of the day and spend three, four or five hours gaming and, and, and such. And you and I had talked about uh, just actually just before this came on, you and I got off into a conversation offline about um, a study I read was reading about like, what are the top questions that they're now saying that you should ask someone before you get married? And it's like, are you willing to stop doing certain things for certain lengths of time? In other words, gaming now has become a part of premarital counseling. Um, So, yeah, I've been hearing a lot about this as a pastor. And usually, as I said, as a wife. I'm not saying that's always the case, just anecdotally. It's a wife concerned about their husband and what it's doing to their marriage. Uh, it's one thing to come home at the end of the day, and everybody wants an hour to spend to themselves, you know, to just unwind, chill, decompress. It's like, okay, that's fine. It's another when that becomes your evening, and you neglect your wife and your children, uh, as well as the responsibilities of house and home. Uh, I think it's something that needs to be talked about. I think it's something that needs to be managed. Uh, it's not about someone giving up gaming as much as it is keeping gaming and any and all other recreational or side time investments in their proper place um, within given time boundaries, because anything can become an escape, an excuse to not do life, to not engage relationships, to not engage realities. Uh, and I think that's what's going on here. And there's a lot of life that I think many people may want to avoid. And this is how they're avoiding it. So just like you would uh, impose boundaries on a child, uh, marriages need to impose boundaries as well. Negotiate boundaries. Uh, Here's the time we'll both have to do what we want to do. Here's when that time to do what we want to do will take place. Here's the time we'll both invest in, you know, being together or with the kids or as a family. And so you talk about that rather than, than let it fester into resentment. And I've that's been kind of marriage 101 stuff for me, talking with people from day one, you know, where you just long before gaming loomed on the scene, just, you know, when when are you going to, you know, discipline your time and, and have it be um, um, uh, used well. And, 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 and you know, I, I, I'm going to field here, but I, I'll follow a prompting. You know, there's a lot of, I, I, I would say, just as, just as an older man to younger men and younger women too, um, that uh, don't cheapen your life 
by spending so much of it on something that is trivial. And, and, you know, you're, you're, there's so much, you, you have limited time and, and, and you want to use your time in a way that's significant and consequential. And you want to use it on things that, that will matter and that will let your life have consequence. And so, so ask yourself, what is it that matters most to you? And what matters most, you know, is, is it, is it your marriage? Is it your role as a father or a mother? Is it, is it the importance of developing your mind and writing and, and, or reading and, 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 or, or, you know, ministry or serving people or whatever it is. There's so many things that you can do with your life that matter. And it's easy. And I think it's one of the seductions of the evil one to use entertainment, to use pleasure, to seduce us into a life of irrelevance and a life of almost being numb and almost being sedated. Mm-hmm. This, this was, this was, I recently reread, um, uh, Huxley's Brave New World. And that's exactly what that book's about. This whole thing is about, well, it was, it was an attack on socialism, <laughs> you know, and, and such. But it was also about how um, the, the giving of pleasure was a way of controlling people and a way of getting people off the, you know, keep them on the sidelines of life. They kept getting the, the drug Soma, if you've read the novel, and other things. And just um, that, that, you know, unlimited sex and unlimited drugs and sedation and just, just we're going to, we're going to, we're going to attack the human psyche and nature through pleasure as opposed to something else. And so there's this character in, in the novel called the savage who was someone who was immune from all that and who said, no, but I want to read and I want to taste life and I don't want to avoid death and I want to do this and do that. And there was a sense of life is more than pleasure. And when you satiate your senses with pleasure, you numb yourself to real living. And I do think that there's something there for the gaming world and that you cheapen your life and you don't live it as fully as you, as you could. And I think there's a thousand ways to do that. Um, and I think gaming is simply one of them that we can be seduced into. Mm. Well, I think it's fair to say that gaming is just going to rise in popularity and it's going to evolve more and more, as you mentioned, into virtual reality spaces. I would love to dedicate like a completely separate conversation um, just about virtual reality. And we'll, so we'll do that in the future. But just for now, I'm curious, what do you think about the church's involvement, if any, um, with regards to this topic, what should the church's involvement be? My goodness, Alexis, you're talking to the person who wrote the book, Hybrid Church. <laughs> <laughs> I obviously think it holds enormous opportunity, and I know you've read that. And um, and so you're, you're just throwing me raw meat. Um, but uh, as I wrote in Hybrid Church, I, I do think it's something to be seized and engaged for the purpose and the mission of the church, not just gaming, but all things, the whole blending of the physical and the digital. Uh, and it has to do with our individual investments in that mission. I mean, consider, but we'll, let me stick to gaming. Consider the live streaming platform, Twitch, uh, where participants, largely of various games, uh, talk with each other as they play. It's one of the big community building things that you mentioned. An estimated 15 million, I think the latest figures are around 15 million, uh, daily active users on Twitch, of which... 73% are under the age of 35. Uh, we have a member of our church um, who was talking to me once. Uh, great guy, very active, and been around a long time. And he was telling me 
that he, there's a certain game that he does online with Twitch. He's very good at, um, and he's got other followers on Twitch that watch him play. And he was asking me, you know, ways that he could leverage that for the kingdom, leverage that for, um, evangelism. And, uh, and so he would do things like, um, uh, use it to direct people. He says, well, if you like watching me do this, he says, guess what I'm going to be doing this weekend? I'm going to be watching my church's online campus. Why don't we all watch it together through Twitch? Mm. So we started getting this big Twitch group together to watch our online campus. And uh, I just thought that was just so cool. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was exactly the kind of thinking, creative thinking. Um, and so that's just an isolated example tied to the gaming world. Um of how this can be used by the church for outreach and evangelism and even using the gaming community that way. In fact, there's many people who feel like the gaming community is one of the most unchurched groups on the planet and is just waiting to be reached. But there's a larger issue at hand. We have to rethink the church's approach to fulfilling its mission in light of it being a post-Christian digital age. That's just a radical rethinking. And the heart of that rethinking does revolve around the word hybrid, the church bringing together the physical and the digital, not solely digital, but a hybrid, physical and digital in terms of outreach and mission. The world is online. The world is gaming. The world is on Twitter and Facebook and, 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 and TikTok. And, and we need to go there and we need to be there if we are going to reach them. I know this conversation has been incredibly helpful. I was just talking to you before about how just doing the research in preparation for this episode, I was just shocked at the results, especially not being heavily involved in gaming. It's it's come such a long way that I f- you feel like you blink and the world is completely different with regards to this area of life. And so I hope this is really informative. I hope that this is the preface for a lot of other conversations we're going to have. Because as you mentioned, it's not talked about enough, but it is so prevalent in so many aspects of our life and will continue to be. Yeah. Pervasive. Pervasive. That's a great word for that. Yes. So I know it's going to come up again in future conversations, but hopefully this will be our foundational episode. We'll just keep um, giving, this will be our 101. I'm sure we'll talk about, we'll have um, other things in the future to talk through, but yeah. Thank you for this time, um, Jim. And thank you guys for listening. We will have you guys back next week. Thanks.